to Subtext and Discourse, a podcast which takes you behind the scenes of the art world with the unique individuals involved in the field. I'm your host, Michael Dooney, co-founder and director of Jarvis Dooney Gallery, independent contemporary art space with a focus on photography, video and lens based media. Today, I'm speaking with emerging artist David Charles Collins, originally from Perth, Western Australia and currently based in Sydney. In the time that I've known David, his practice has transformed from producing elaborate photographic works reminiscent of romantic classical paintings to videos that question contemporary perceptions of masculine identity. We talk about his early inspirations, the difficult realisations artists may have to face about their work, and why this self-reflection is crucial to both personal and artistic development. David also has recent work included in the Boys, Boys, Boys touring exhibition promoting queer and gay photography currently at Photographiska New York in collaboration with the Little Black Gallery London. Just a reminder to please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts to help build our audience. So without further delay, I hope you enjoy hearing my conversation with David Charles Collins. I know when I did my master's, one of the professors at the beginning said, when you write your thesis, that will change your whole outlook and perspective on everything that you're considering doing moving forward. Do you think that was the case for you when you did the MFA in Sydney? Absolutely. Moving to Sydney very much was press of a reset button for me conceptually and and process-wise. That's what I always intended it to be because I felt the practice that I'd been working on for close to 10 years prior was getting tighter and tighter and I could assume where each body of work or series was going, which was making me feel like it was slightly redundant as far as my own process was concerned. So what I really wanted to do was leave Perth, which is where I grew up, and completely change context and scene and be exposed to ideally a supervisor while doing my master's who was really going to push me in a productive way and challenge me so that I could really reframe my practice in a way that was relevant to current day David, not David who had started previously and and fallen into particular patterns. I mean, it was almost completely by accident. I ended up with an artist who I'd admired ever since I was like, she's a rock star over here, Julie Rapp, who's an amazing performance video uh, multidisciplinary artist who I've always sort of been in awe of. When I came over to Sydney initially for a couple of days to look at the universities over here, you need to be approved by a supervisor before you can be accepted by the university. So I was approaching each head of photography and video media to see if they were interested in in working with me. But when I got here, I hadn't been able to be in touch with anyone at Sydney College of the Arts. And I went to uh, one of the other universities and talked to someone there and they said, look, you know, it'd be lovely to have you, but unfortunately our books are full for now. Have you tried speaking to SCA? And I said, I'd reached out and they said, no, 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 it's it's now Julie Rapp, who's video media there now, not who you had been in touch with. The website just hadn't been updated. So I was in town for another 12 hours and I frantically sent her an email via her gallery thinking I was never going to hear anything and then went out and commiserated. And then the next morning I woke up to an email saying she'd meet me at 10 o'clock and we had a chat and she said she'd be happy to work with me. And then I, I flew back to Perth. So it was, it was, sort of a perfect storm. There's a lot of um, nerves flying around. <laughs> yeah, wow. It, it worked out perfectly. Because I was just thinking you knew that she was doing performance and video before you, you met with her, I guess. Oh, absolutely. Um, but also, I mean, again, you know, coming from Perth, which is quite insular, she is a very prolific Australian artist. I mean, I spent the first six months getting to know her, trying to get over my fanboy sort of nerves every time I spoke to her. She she really was on that pedestal to me. So when someone just told me, I'll oh, just send her an email and ask if she'll work with you, 
I, I almost laughed because I thought there is no way that I'm going to hear back. I was over the moon because I really admired and, and do admire her practice. There were emphases that I had never looked at before in my own work that was incredibly useful, especially the, the performative nature of it and utilizing your own body, which I hadn't really done before, maybe in one or two pieces. But Yeah, I noticed that last night when I read your thesis again. I thought up until that point, you'd always been behind the camera directing and staging and putting Absolutely. everything together. This was a real turning point where you were an active participant. You were the kind of subject and the director with what you were making. I think being behind the camera and being so in control or perceived control was what was limiting my practice as far as interrogation was concerned. Because when I felt comfortable with what I could produce from that vantage point, the outcome was predictable. What I really wanted was artworks that were interrogations for myself that weren't necessarily already at some sort of conclusion. They were more explorations. So I thought I really needed to put myself in that place of vulnerability by changing spaces with the subject and moving away from having that vantage point of control, which was the camera, which is how everything's recorded and documented and depicted. So thinking back now to your photography, before you made this switch to performance and video and then being in front of the camera as well, how did you start initially? You were already, I imagine, quite busy with photography before you went to Curtin. So before I studied art at Curtin, I knew that art was what I wanted to pursue. But photography was always a guilty pleasure because it was something that I really admired to the point where it was just coincidentally, I'd find when I stumbled through art books or even cinematography books, it was always the photography that really struck a nerve and moved me and that I wanted to get my fingers into. But I had never done any photography training. And at the time, when I was at high school as well, darkroom photography was still quite prominent, not in a way that is now you really have to struggle for it. Whereas then that was where you started before you went any further. I guess I felt guilty that I didn't know how to do any of that. So I didn't want to approach it out of shame of, I don't know, messing it up or anything. I, I, don't, I don't know what that was. I, I didn't want to approach the temple of photography and um, smear it with my <laughs> dirty fingers. But I found that everything I was doing was coming back around to the documentation. I was um, working on a lot of sculptural works or composing paintings that I wanted to do. They weren't very good, but I wanted to get the composition and everything together and I just found that I was spellbound by the magic of putting something in front of a camera and capturing it in that moment and depending on how you, you light it or how you position someone or just the smallest of thing and you get that moment it sort of creates this illusion of a mood or a theme or an idea and I picked up an elective of photography at university and used that as an opportunity to splash around in it and I was very lucky because there was no pressure to be any good at it or have any resolution to start off with so all my anxieties subsided because it was just a case of, right, go out and see what you come up with. Here's the very basics of how to capture an image on film, make sure that the aperture and the shutter speeds get you a light reading where something comes out. And then it was just a case of play. I was very lucky. I had a lot of friends and people around me that were trusting and weren't anticipating a final outcome. They were just happy to go with it and see where it went. So it allowed me that time to figure out what I wanted to do with it and what could be done with it without this pressure of a final outcome or having to have something that represented them in a way that was too precious as well, which Again, I'm very lucky you know, that, that I had that because that's sort of... I was wondering, I guess, most of the people that you photograph would have been, I guess, your friends and people that were willing to Absolutely. They must have really trusted you, I think, when you look at a lot of your choreography. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting looking back on it now, and it's one of those things where I think if you address it too much in your own mind, you start to psych yourself out. Whereas at the time, because we sort of were plummeting into it headfirst without thinking too much about it, something that I'm always interested in in my artwork, whether it's video 
whether it's photography, is escapism and is through learning through catharsis and, and letting your hair down, essentially, that very Dionysian idea of surrendering to the wine and the moonlight and all these glorious things which uh, living out in the Swan Valley lent itself to. It sort of like became a little excursion. People would come out and stay at my parents' house and you'd be surrounded by vineyards and horses and all sorts of things and just relax and play dress-ups. Then I'd just shoot away like a few rolls of film and, and see what came out of it. It was very relaxed and liberating. And again, I was lucky because in hindsight, if you had told very nervous 18-year-old David, it's now your job to get all your friends to put themselves in compromising, revealing situations, I think I'd have a heart attack, but it just sort of happened. Yeah, definitely. You can sort of see it through the images. So the Swan Valley then, I guess I'm also from Perth, so I know the Swan Valley as well. I'm quite familiar with it. I guess if anybody else didn't know, like, how would you even describe it? Because it's next to the city, isn't it? It is. It's sort of ideal. I look back at it and I pinch myself. I was very lucky. It's about a 45-minute drive out of the CBD, which in Perth isn't that far. Everything's 30-minute drive. You have a car and that's just how you get around. It's a very Italian area, so there's a lot of old Italian families and Italian architecture, and there's a lot of wineries around there. So there's vineyards, and in retrospect, now that I'm out of it, you can see where different cultures bled into it and shaped it in a particular way that at the time you took for granted. And it also backed onto the Swan River and a lot of nature all around you. And then you've got these beautiful 70s style houses and there's a lot of people that own livestock, not so much farming, but more recreationally. There'll be a few goats scattered here and there and people have horses and things like that. So it was kind of perfect because you have access to the city and everything that that has to offer, but it's a step enough out of it to escape the, I mean, this sounds very on the nose, but the hustle and bustle of everything everyday uh, <laughs> life. <laughs> it's also one of those things I think that now that I live in a very busy city, I realized that it shaped my outlook and the way I make art a lot. I like to reference pagan mythologies. I like to reference nature. I like to reference the cycle of time. When you're living in a place where every day where you get up, you've noticed if the seasons have changed, how much rain you've had, that sort of thing. You notice the year go by in a different way than you do if you're in a city and you've got the aircon on and you're not really paying attention apart from whether or not you need a jacket. That's shaped my outlook on on the rhythm of how we live. I know that sounds really, again, on the nose, but it's just, it, it's a symptom of it. Yeah, definitely. And I think since living in Berlin as well, or living in Europe, I didn't grow up in the bush the same way, although I was in Mandarin on the outskirts. I think I also just took nature for granted because it was just always there. But I think living away from it and Absolutely. being in a city and living in an apartment, you're like, wow, I really need to get close to trees and greenery. Have you felt the same thing since living in Sydney? Honestly, I found it, especially the very the first six months, I didn't realize how hard I was finding it. And then a good friend of mine who I was living with, I actually moved over here with um, Abdul Abdullah. I was helping him with a project in the Blue Mountains and I didn't have a car, so I hadn't been there. We drove up there and I just remember the first time getting out of the city, climbing up there, just being able to stand surrounded by trees and everything and just breathing it in. And you just noticed that everything that you had tightened up and tensed, just relaxed. And you suddenly noticed how much you need it and how much you'd missed it. It was kind of a shock to the system. And since then, I've done my best to make sure that if I've got some time, go for a swim in the beach, go for a walk in a park, just try and get those beautiful snatched moments out of the concrete and glass everywhere. <laughs> exactly. Where you grew up then, were you on a winery or you had, was it a farm then or a hobby? 
hobby farm? Or? I mean, I guess you could describe it as a hobby farm. We had a few acres. My mum and actually mum and my mum and my dad both came from farming backgrounds, except my dad's family moved to the city when he was young. My dad's a mechanic. It's an ideal place where he can have a shed and work from there. Make noise. And again, because my mum comes from out of the city, she likes having a bit of space around her. And again, she likes the horses. And it was something that we had growing up, which, you know, is very spoiled. But oh. <laughs> So you grew up riding horses then? I did, yeah. Because I noticed in some of your earlier work, there were horses present. <laughs> they were sort of in the background. <laughs> and until looking at your recent work, you're kind of at one with the horses when you're working with them. It's one of those things I didn't really appreciate that connection until I wasn't there anymore. I only really started making the work with the horses once I was in Sydney and was traveling backwards and forth to see family. And I noticed how much I missed that connection. But I had people saying to me when I was in Perth, you need to make work with these horses. What you've got there is something that most people don't have. But because I was so used to it as a daily thing, I guess I couldn't see the forest for the trees. And I was just sort of like, I don't really know what you're talking about. How is this interesting to anyone? And how is it anything other than domestic life, I guess? So what motivated the shift then? You opted to go to Sydney to do your master's. Was that really the main motivation? In a roundabout way, yes. I wanted to further my practice and potentially, if you know, if I can make it a career, my career. And in Perth, I noticed that I'd sort of spoken to the people that I could speak to about things and what I was doing was sort of, it becomes a bit repetitive. And and that's, and that sounds more derogatory than I mean it, but I just wanted to be exposed to people that I hadn't met before and see things differently and change perspective and change up my practice, which I totally have done since being here. Not just from the art community side of things, but I would say that I'm still relatively ignorant about it, but I'm, I'm fascinated by the technical side of photography and, and videography and being educated about those things. You're limited to the people and the work environments where you can learn those things in Perth. Whereas since coming to Sydney, you know, I've assisted photographers, I've worked on film sets, I work at an amazing chemical film lab where every day I just learn so much about different printing techniques, different film stocks, the way shifting the temperature of chemical while developing a film can change the color completely, like things like that, that I just couldn't get in Perth. So it was about exposure to those things. And I've definitely reaped the rewards of taking that risk. It's been worth it. How many years have you been in Sydney now? <laughs> God, it's, it's getting up there. Um, Almost six. So it's, it's home now. <laughs> and did you start the studies immediately? I did. I started studying immediately. Like I said, I, I moved over here with my friend Abdul. We moved over both to study. We got here and we, we moved into a backpack as well. We looked for a place. And that was in end of December, beginning of January. And by March, uni had started. So it was quite fast paced, but it was good. You know, get off to a running start, get into it. It was, it was exciting. <laughs> in terms of changing your creative process and approach to making your work, were you a bit hesitant at first? Moving, not moving. Moving. Actually, no, moving. You were going from still imagery <laughs> to moving imagery. Yeah. I mean, it was the scariest part was I didn't know what I was going to do next. I felt like photographically, I felt stale in what I was producing. In 2014, I produced a series that I was very happy with. I was over the moon. It was everything I wanted it to be. But then after that, I just found myself at a place where I didn't know what to do that wasn't a repetition of what I had already done. And I wanted to be excited again. I didn't want to be just going through the motions, assuming what I'm going to come up with. That wasn't why I was interested in it. And for me, that's what made it an art practice was the uncertainty and the exploration. So really, that's again why I really have to, I know I've been banging this drum, but I 
I have to stress why Julie was so fantastic as a supervisor because I came to her and I showed her what I'd been working on and I said, look, I can't. I, I'm not saying I want to stay away from this forever. And I have recently been working on photography that does arc back to where I've been before, but I feel like it's progressed because I've spent a few years away from working that way. And that's why going back to study was fantastic because I really think universities are an excellent place where you can just throw your hands up in the air and go, I'm going to go make some mistakes. I'm going to go know, not, not know what I'm doing and explore what it is I'm interested in now and the processes because I really didn't have any anxieties about not knowing technically what I was doing because I knew that a large part of it was snapping out of a comfort zone where I went, okay, I know how to use this camera and take this picture. Instead, it was, I don't know much about performance art. And I know that working in video is different to photography because you have to let go of a lot of your ego because you will be working in a team most of the time where it's about communication and collaboration rather than the main character behind the camera making all the calls. But I found that really exciting. I thought it's time to mix things up. I've done the same thing for long enough. Yeah, definitely. I guess your video work, it was initially quite introspective and it was very much inward looking. Oh, 100%. Rather than directing scenes and creating these different tableaus. Is that what Julie was sort of, she encouraged that or you kind of had the ideas already or she helped bring them to the surface? I mean, she definitely helped bring them to the surface. I feel like I wanted to go down that direction, but I almost needed someone going. To push you. Yeah, do it. It's funny. I just listened to your last episode. There were similar things discussed about. Yeah, with Josephine. Yeah. When you're talking about representations of self, ego comes into it a lot where it's, am I a raging narcissist for putting myself in front of the camera? And that's why I put myself in what at the time anyway I perceived to be relatively vulnerable situations was because I wanted there to be a point where my guard was down and it wasn't a controlled posing to the camera. It was a reaction to a situation I'd put myself in so that it was less self-conscious because whether we like it or not, we all position ourselves slightly differently when we catch a reflection in a car window or know that someone's got their phone out. It's human nature. And I wanted to try and challenge that within myself so that I could get an authentic performance from me because it was suddenly struggling with artist performance performance and performance art. Was I performing a play or was I reacting to a situation and recording it? And then it gets even messier conceptually when you're working with it afterwards because it's recorded and sometimes recorded from different angles. Suddenly you've got control over the performance again through editing. So you're sort of domesticating this thing that was meant to be wild. So these were all things that my head was exploding with that they hadn't been through before. So having someone like Julie to bounce those thoughts off who had already been through all these things in their own practice and and, and still do, it sort of liberated me to at least explore them because it's bizarre how sometimes you just need that one person to say, no, 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 go, go. You've got permission to do this thing for you to actually go and do it. When you're doing a photo shoot and you're... I don't know, you're sort of in your street clothes and someone else is dressed up ridiculous or half naked up a tree or something. It's easier to say, trust me, it's okay. This is going to be all right. But then when someone else is in charge of the camera, like I remember one of the DOPs on one of the first videos I did where I was covered in molasses and had the horse licking off me. Like he's a friend of mine I'd worked with before, Ben Burkout. He works on a lot of commercials and documentaries and things. And it, it's a stranger sensation to be having horse food poured over you or you're naked and saying to someone else, can you just record this for me and get some good angles? Like, and, and he just turned to me and went, David, you're a weird dude. And it was, um, yeah, you've sort of got to have confidence in what you're doing. You've got to go, no, 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 this is going to be fine. Like, <laughs> I promise. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> 
So how did you break down the different processes then? Because it seems that cathartism, cathartism, catharsis. Yes, <laughs> that seemed to be like a central theme that you were exploring in the horse boy, which was your thesis in multiple stages. I guess I was interested in more interrogating my own identity rather than the world that I've inhabited or talking about universal experiences, but going, how about talking about them through yourself rather than other people? And a large part of that was when you're discussing identity is you're talking about representation and how you were represented as a body, as a person, how you act, how you behave. But another part of that, this is, sorry, it sounds very muddy, but I'm jumping around a few thoughts in my head. Another thing I was interested in, in looking at with myself is you come to a new city and you're building relationships with people and you're questioning relationships with people and you're also questioning how much you project on other people as far as relationships and worth and perception. And that's why I wanted to start working with animals, primarily domesticated animals, because I feel like we project so much on them about what our relationships are with them and how much we mean to them and how we interact. And I wanted to use that as an analog for coming into contact with other people and beings in the world and the reality of that versus what's going on in your head. And and I did that by, I guess, trying to put myself in vulnerable situations with them where I relied on them to an extent, trusting me and taking care of me. I was going to ask you about working with animals because one of the lines that you mentioned, which I really liked, was that the the animals, they're non-human collaborators yeah. rather than tools. Oh, absolutely. And rather than here's a device that's going to do this, you're like, no, you're an active participant. You don't have a choice, yeah. but you're still <laughs> yeah. participating in the process. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, a huge part of it was trying to come up with scenarios where the exchange, I couldn't anticipate a resolution. I could sort of guess how an animal would respond. And that's why I started with horses. I mean, to go off topic again, you mentioned how previously when I photographed other people, horses tended to be in the background. And a large reason for that was I would have loved to have photographed the people that I was photographing on these horses and everything. But suddenly you don't think about it until you've got someone who's never been around one before, how big they are and how dangerous they can be and how unpredictable they are if you're not doing that every day and you're not used to it. So I realized that with myself, I could have these interactions and put myself in place where, you know, I'm on the horse, I am talking to the horse, I'm lifting up the horse's leg, I'm washing the horse, because these are things I've done before. And to an extent, I like to think that I can interpret their body language and I have a relationship with the ones that I've known for years so that they know who I am. And I would like to think that they don't wish me any malice if they find themselves in a situation that they haven't come across before. They trust that I'm not trying to hurt them or eat them, which is the animal part of their brain going fight or flight. That's why I found it more useful to work with an animal I'd worked with a lot because I knew that to some extent there was a pre-existing relationship there that was sincere and real. But I also wanted to question how much of that was me projecting onto it like, oh, this horse thinks this about me. Anthropomorphize it, <laughs> essentially. I have to say I was surprised at times in a good way. For instance, where Shandy, the horse, was licking the molasses off me. I found that the way she was responding was very nurturing. Like she wasn't going near my face and other vulnerable areas. She was going to my hands and my arms, places where she was used to receiving food. She'd nip to catch the molasses and lick, but she'd never bite me. So there was this element of care there where she wasn't just going gun-ho and didn't attack my face. It was an awareness for me and I guess how gentle she could be, which was genuinely surprised because I thought, yeah, all bets are off <laughs> which way this is going to go. That is interesting because you would think with most animals, if you covered yourself in food, yeah. they'd be like, all right, it's a free-for-all now. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> they wouldn't still be careful, yeah. I mean, later on I did to project some sort of Promethean metaphor. I tried to do the same thing with an eagle 
eagle a bit later and found that a completely different exercise because an eagle is a wild animal and it doesn't have that same regard as you. It could be threatened by you as some sort of prey or something. But while it was eating the liver of the animal that was on the branch that was across me, it was sort of like if it needed to get to a better vantage point by stepping on me and putting those amazing, terrifying demon chicken claws into me, it would have done so without thinking about it because it doesn't have that pre-existing relationship with me. I mean, I, I guess it also it doesn't have thousands of years of co-evolution of being agriculture, transportation, all of those things where horses and humans have this huge history of cohabitation, whereas eagles, not so much. <laughs> so it sounds like you learned a lot about your horses through the process as well. You gained a new insight into them. I think so, yeah, definitely. Or an awareness of something that was already tacit or instinctual. If you start to pay attention to a way you already would have behaved or anticipated from them, and I don't know, it's kind of refreshing. But it's also, I think it's also important to note that whenever I do get smug and assume that we've got this great relationship and I can get away with whatever I want, usually something will happen that will snap you back into reality and go, don't get too careless because you're still dealing with an animal that reacts by its own agency. Something like that happened when you were washing one of the horses, if I remember right, where she got spooked or she was afraid and then pulled away and then you had to drop character to reassure the animal. A hundred percent, which with the safety of retrospect was probably one of the most successful parts of that performance. At the time, it was a bit worrying because obviously my first concern was for the horse and the second is for the equipment that the horse was backing into quite quickly. Um, You know, (laughs) and, and it's moments like those that you genuinely go, what the hell am I doing? I know this is going to sound... I don't know what it's going to sound, but I think especially photographers and filmmakers and people that use other people or animals or things in what they're producing, there are moments where you go, what am I doing? Like, you know, you need to be constantly checking safety and things that you like, at the end of the day, I'm just making a film. I'm just making a photo. And it's never more important than the life or the safety of another person or another animal or anything like that. So occasionally you have those little wake up calls where you go, just be careful before you sign off on something, make sure that as much as you can, you're not putting anyone at risk because I don't care what anyone says, no artist is on such a high pedestal that people are allowed to be, I don't know, disposable or animals are just tools because they're not. Absolutely. So the work that you created through the thesis, if I'm not mistaken, the first time that was presented to the public, you had an exhibition at Stills called Pony. That's when you had quite a few of the video pieces presented. How is the public response versus your old work and how did you feel anticipating what are people going to think? Oh, 100%. So Stills was the second time it was showed. The first time was at... Oh, okay, sorry. No, 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 no. The only reason I say that was because it feeds into the answer. The first time I showed it was at an artist-run space that unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. It was an amazing little space in Sydney called Wellington Street Projects. It was very much a situation where I couldn't anticipate what people's response was going to be, which was good, but there was a safety in what I was doing before because I could anticipate what I thought people would like or what people would react against, etc., etc. Whereas there was that anxiety because you've put up a room full of television screens of yourself flouncing around without any clothes on in different, you know, lighting... <laughs> With, with all these animals going, what, you know, again, what am I doing? What sort of response will I get from this? And the response was overwhelmingly positive to the point that that's how the still show was a result of that because someone saw it and said to the director, like, you need to have a look at this stuff. You need to show it, which was fantastic. To be honest, I was skeptical at first how people were going to respond to it because I think in a lot of cases, photographers are just frustrated filmmakers. So I knew that I wanted to make film. I'm inspired by film. I love the narrative of it. I'm also very well aware that it's a hard sell to an audience because it might just look like a boring video clip or a TV show that goes for too long where nothing happens. So I was pleasantly surprised without tooting my own horn. It was interesting to see how long people will watch a video for 
because my intention, especially with the one where I'm bathing the horse, that video goes for an hour. And I did that on purpose because I didn't want to create a video that people would watch from beginning to end. I really like the disjointed sense of walking into something and walking out you get when you turn SBS on at three in the morning and you're halfway through a film and you watch a few scenes and turn it off and you don't really know what's going on. And it's sort of uncanny experience. And I wanted it to be something like that, where people would walk up to it, watch a bit and then walk away, but not really understand the narrative structure I projected onto it after. After making it but it was interesting to see how many people stood there for an hour watching me <laughs> wash a horse like it was um, oh wow it was interesting yeah, yeah. it's also interesting because the room is usually silent because everyone's just quietly watching so it's <laughs> just a bit unnerving <laughs> so following the exhibition at stills obviously graduating completing the thesis what was the first thing that you did because you didn't go back to photography you kept going with video for quite a while yeah, that's exactly right once having finished my master's that had sort of kick-started it had refreshed my approach to art making in a way where I, I I gave myself more permission to do things, whereas previously I might have lacked confidence going, does this have enough merit for me to call it an artwork and put it out in the world? I guess I was talking myself out of projects. After working on the Horse Boy and the Pony series, where it was more me interacting with the horses and domesticated animals, it was very performative, as in spontaneous, in response to a situation. Just as a side note, do you see it more as documentation? Like, no. Is the final result, the recording, what you've edited, that's the piece, isn't it? The, yeah, the, the final edited piece is the artwork, which is why I would say that I don't see it as documentation because it's heavily edited. When I started making them, I genuinely thought that I was going to do the whole thing in one take from one camera angle wide shot so that it was showing unedited something that was happening. But then again, the part of me, the sucker for cinematography, the bit that loves all those sorts of things, just couldn't help it, especially working with such amazing DOPs and people that are just masters of their art. They would film these seemingly ridiculous things I had done in such a beautiful way and I thought I have to use this and then I had to get over the idea that that meant that I was doctoring a performance and turning it into I guess a film it was edited it was changed I talk about the vulnerability of putting yourself in front of the camera but at the end of the day if there was an angle I didn't like or something that I was unhappy with I could always cut it and change it but I'd like people to believe that I've done my best to keep it as honest as possible but obviously you know everyone's got their own neuroses and I'm sure that there's plenty that ended up being cut out that I just justified to myself <laughs> didn't need to be in there Interestingly enough, that meant that I, once I got over that by, I guess, acknowledging again, because I was interested in, and this is a bit of a side spiel, but I was interested in how cameras, our recording devices and everything around us at all time that we choose to edit and stitch together our lives with also fed to, and I might be using this term wrong, but the post-humanism that we find ourselves in. I think that post-humanism isn't necessarily us with some transformer spider leg coming out of our back or, you know, a, a jetpack. It's how we've absorbed technology into part of our identity and ourselves through every day to shape how we're perceived and how we interact with each other and communicate. So within the performances, there was me coming in contact and having an exchange with something biological, which was the animal. And then there was the recording device, which was an extension of my intention to make an artwork as the eye that recorded it and then sliced it together and presented it. So there was myself, animal, technology, all coming together to make this artwork. And once I got my head around that that was fine, I started to lean more into the lack of a better term, more contrived plot points for the videos that I was making. The first one that happened a little bit by accident because I tried to do a performance with some live octopus at the beach and I wanted to see how we would respond to each other and I found that actually live octopus don't really respond that well when they're cold and 
and not interested in doing anything. And then I just have an hour's footage of me lying on a rock with an octopus on my stomach, you know. And then from there, I guess because of where I was at with particular personal relationships I was with, and again, via technology, things via Skype, text message, I was going through exchanges that I'd been having with people that were either friends or relationships from the past or relationships I was currently in or et cetera, et cetera. And looking at that point that I mentioned before about projections of what a relationship means and attempts to connect with someone and how meaningful that is, that desperate idea of trying to see eye to eye with someone and just not quite syncing up. And I thought that the analog of a, of a love story between a person and an, and an octopus, this interspecies, just never being on the same page as each other, but trying to communicate. So I took these text messages and I took these Skype conversations and things because I filmed it in the south of Italy. I, I got a friend to translate it into Italian and I sort of recorded it with a few people. So it was like a cheesy Italian film, you know, on the coast, this love story, these narratives between these people that just really could never see eye to eye, these impossible connections. And that was a leaping point for me because it was something that was so heavily controlled and doctored, but I felt that it was really powerful and sincere and it spoke to what I was going through at the time. It really was, yeah. Oh, thank you. Of all the ones that I watched yesterday, I was wondering actually about the text if you'd written it, maybe because it was in Italian with subtitles, but then even the absurdity of trying to have a relationship with an octopus. (laughs) Like it was... And it was also, I think, this not knowing how the animal is going to respond as well. So you're naked on the rock yeah. and you have a, an octopus on your stomach. Yeah, I don't know what an octopus is capable of. Like they have teeth, don't they? Genuinely, I was the most scared out of all. I've done performances with snakes, horses, eagles. The octopus, I was the most terrified because I, I, same thing. I'm like, do they have beaks? What's going to happen? Mm-hmm. Like, I, yeah. you know, sort of, I, I, and, I, and when it was, you know, it's little suckers, they leave marks all over you that look like little love bites. Is that poisonous? Is it going to kill me? I don't know. It was fine. They're completely harmless. But while doing it, it was very unnerving. <laughs> it was unnerving watching it. So yeah, I think <laughs> I'm glad I, it translates. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do that. Yeah. <laughs> but was that the first one that you did then after the studies? No. So the first. I wasn't one, sure if the, the brother piece. So brother came first, and brother sort of again fed very organically for me because it was sort of me reintroducing other people back into my work for almost two years. It was just me and someone else. I was having all sorts of personal crises about the guilt of associated with using other people in your work and representations and, you know, all of that stuff that I think it's important to go through and you need to come out the other side of and Mm. then use those findings as whether or not you are going to pursue working with people or not. But it was the first time I started to feed collaborating with the other human collaborators back into the mix. Working with the horses meant that the performance was very much flying by the seat of my pants. And I was looking at notions of masculinity and I was giving myself more permission to look at notions of masculinity because it was something that was so personal. I think as a survival technique, your brain tries to tell you that no one would be interested in it, but it's just your way of trying not to look at it. There was this beautiful raging river down near my parents' house and I wanted to have me and this other guy I knew sort of on these horses, two horses, one each, try and push each other off these horses. Because when I was a little kid, me and my friends used to play games like that with our ponies. So I thought, you know, it's that sort of roughhousing kind of thing. And then the person that it said they would do it at the last minute pulled out. And one of my best friends now, like I love him dearly, but to be honest, we didn't know each other that well. I called him up and I'm like, look, Steve, can you please, look, just trust me. Can you help me do this thing? And he's like, yeah, sure. He was totally up for it. And then when we got down there, it had rained, the river was higher and one of the horses didn't want to go in. And I didn't want to, again, I don't want to force something to do something it doesn't want to. I'm like, if you're not happy, go eat grass. So we both got on the same horse and we thought, right, can we push each other off this animal? And it was this sort of thing of awareness of each other and pushing boundaries, how much of it was intimate and how much of it was violence and navigating that space. Mm -hmm. As it was with the animal's 
beforehand of how firm can you be where you're trying to be dominant, but at the same time without actually inflicting actual harm. And then at the same time, being aware of the horse that we were sitting on, trying not to make her uncomfortable or hurt her or make her scared or anything like that. And for the record, she was absolutely fine. I've had people say, oh, it's cruelty to animals and all sorts of carry on. And and if you believe riding horses is cruelty to animals, then I'm, I'm not going to argue that case because I think that's valid if you want to come from that perspective. Totally, it's a recreation and we don't need to be riding them for transport or agriculture. So if you've decided that that's not okay, then I respect that. But if you think horse riding's fine, one person versus two people being on her back that day really didn't make a difference. She was <laughs> she was fine. Yeah. You know, she was she just <laughs> happy splashing around. Yeah, I think watching it, it didn't seem out of the ordinary for the horse. She was like, oh, yeah, two dudes on my back. Like, I think she was happy that no one was asking her to do anything more than stand there. So she was like, all right, you do this as long as you need to do this for. <laughs> you were touching on things about masculinity. And I think when you were doing your earlier videos, you were also cognizant of the fact that if you're placing yourself in the scene as a as a human yeah. or as an individual, you're also a man. And it's yeah. like, okay, how is masculinity portrayed? And then that seems to be coming up more and more with your work. It kind of treads the line between male aggression, but then male eroticism. Yeah. And it goes either way. Yeah, when you're watching, you think, okay, are they fighting with each other or are they embracing and yeah. it is this kind of tricky balance between the two because then when you're watching it if you're watching it as a straight man you're thinking how do I feel about this that I'm watching <laughs> and it's different no but it's different if I think about your other pictures because you have yeah. men and women in a lot of your other oh, pictures 100%. and even if you've got men that look like gods in your images but then you've also got these goddess women around them it's not that different to when you see statues and when you see the kind of classical paintings where they're in the Garden of Eden or wherever this new work and I think definitely with a lot of your videos it feels as though it's in a more contemporary context it looks less like fantasy mm. and more like elements of reality that are just a little tiny bit removed at what point did you think okay and this is something that I need to maybe go with more actually years ago when we spoke about your work you said that somebody was surprised or she really liked the work and then they're oh what do you mean a man made these I thought yeah. this, this was a female artist that made it and then she didn't like it anymore if it's from a more feminine or a more delicate way of approaching subjects, people are assuming, well, that's not a masculine one, it's a feminine one, it has to be like this. There's a lot of these different assumptions that come into how we perceive work that I feel is also like a big element now with what you're making and how you're going forward with video and including yourself in what you're making. Um, I think to continue... There was a lot of questions there. But just no, I mean, I <laughs> that's all right. I think there were three questions in there. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'll start off by answering um, because it's the quickest and easiest to. You mentioned that the work starts to look more contemporary in its settings. Part of that was that, A, I felt that by placing the artwork in other time and referencing that much, that made sense when I started making work when I'd, I had never travelled anywhere, I'd never been anywhere, and I lived in Perth, and my perception of the world was through books, was through movies, and was through the internet in its infancy. So there was this fetishization, I guess, of the rest of the world and this glorious history and all of these things and this desire to travel and go to these far off places. And I think that there was something interesting in the misinterpretation of it, the way I was presenting it. I guess in the same way, you know, Derek Jarman will recreate paintings anachronistically. There'll be contemporary things in there in a more subtle way, completely by accident. I was doing similar things so the audience could engage with it to a respect. And meanwhile, me and the people that were in the work were, you know, were having this fantasy little getaway where in our heads we were in a Fellini film or in a Renaissance painting. Whereas, as I guess my ability to do that became 
more refined or more specific and I actually got to see some of the world, people connected with the work less because it didn't speak to them because it didn't speak to a time, but it didn't also look like imitation in the naive way that it had before. It looked too, uh, without using this as a dirty term, a little bit too high fashion. I think I became aware that I wanted to bring more of the world into it. Like you said, sort of a step out of everyday life, but still nods to the fact that this is a little side that's happening. A beautiful river that looks like Eden, but there is a highway just up the road, that sort of thing. As for people's reaction to the work based on my gender, you know, people really liking the work when they think it's a woman empowering women, and then they find out that a male photographer took it and finding that maybe the work was objectifying these people because that's their belief and that's fine. And they don't necessarily understand that this is a, a long collaborative relationship I've had with someone that enjoys the role that they play for the camera and doesn't feel exploited as far as I'm aware. And as far as we were at the time, that was something that I guess was becoming a more of a conversation, which is good because it needed to be globally as well. The role of male directors, male photographers, male filmmakers, it needed to be examined and it needed to be questioned. And while that was happening, thank God I had people around me making sure that I was paying attention to that conversation as well because what you create regardless of how innocent you and the other person perceive it to be it doesn't exist in a bubble I'm now photographing other people again of all genders but I, I spent a while where I took a step back from that because I really did want it to be something that I meditated on and considered and had confidence in when I reapproached it because I know I've said it but we don't exist in a bubble there's an entire history of representation there that I was to an extent exploiting when using certain shorthand in the symbolism that I was using and the depictions I was using. I, I don't regret any of the work that I've, I've ever made to date, as far as I know. I've never had anyone say afterwards that they're unhappy with how they felt during a shoot, but I definitely needed that time to step away and consider the politics of representation. And I think by putting myself in that place was a good jumping off point to meditate on that. And I'll never exist in a neutral state. You know, no one will. Like you mentioned earlier, you know, using a male body, it's going to be a male reading and a male depiction of the male form. But it is my body and I'm allowed to have a conversation about how I feel that fits in the world or explore how it fits in the world and how it's perceived and how it interacts. And that's what was important about the videos for me was that in the making of them, I wasn't going in there with a conclusion going, I have this to say. It was, I want to see how I feel and what comes out of this. Working with Steve on the brother video was incredibly significant in doing that because Steve is a very good friend of mine. But when we did the video, we didn't know each other that well. So I didn't know detailed things about his sexual orientation. I didn't know where his comfort levels were. I didn't know what those things were. So everything that is portrayed in the video of trying to find that barrier between acceptable intimacy, where it's okay to put the hand, how hard you can push, all of those sorts of things was sincerely happening as it was being recorded because we didn't really have a conversation about it before we started. There was just an action that was addressed, which is let's try and get each other off this horse <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then see where it goes. But I'm glad that discussing male identity and from the male perspective, you know, gender politics and queer identities is something that I'm discussing and looking at now because I think that for myself, it's profoundly important. And also for the country that we find ourselves in, Sydney is a very lucky place. Like everywhere, it's got a long way to go, but it's not as stringent with where it sees dividing lines to do with, you know, binaries and behaviours and what a man does, what a woman does, who it's okay to fall in love with, etc., etc. But as we were talking about before, for all its blessings and all the wonderful things about it, Perth is a place that culturally, as far as those things are concerned, is probably a few decades behind <laughs> 
the the you know the rest of the world. Yeah, it's a bit provincial. It's it's quite provincial, and it, it's something that I identify as a queer man. But I know a lot of men that are straight men, and they still struggle with their masculinity and their masculine identity because of the pressures that put on them. Being told how you present yourself, how you behave, what you are to other people, how you treat other people, how you treat other men, how you treat other women. So in my very small way, I want to have work that talks about those issues and how you carry yourself and how you can be perceived. Yeah, definitely. What's the name of your book? I wrote the word down because it was difficult to pronounce. <laughs> Hirath? Hirath. Hirath, yeah. Yeah, a Welsh word. So from your book, your work that's been included in this Boys, Boys, Boys exhibition, is it through the Little Black Gallery? Or? Uh, Galan Pascal, the co-director of Little Black Gallery. It's a project that I guess is an entity they are presenting and they have sort of run for years. Yeah, so, sort of explores different contemporary photographers' representation of men and queer eroticism. And it's an ancient trope, but this is a contemporary outlook on it. Gilan's been doing wonderful things for this project and this year there were exhibitions in different cities throughout the world. It was really set up. Like a lot of people, there was a lot happening with it. You know, this is sort of throwing a bit of a spanner in the works. Like a lot of creative spaces and galleries, they've been very adaptable. The Photographskia exhibition that was going to be in New York, launching in June to coincide with World Pride, will be taking place online. So that's still happening now, which is fantastic news. A book of a survey of the photographers from the most recent exhibition has just been released. So you can actually go to their website and sign up to be part of the community and get news about that. And you can pre-order the book as well. And I believe they're going to be dispatched pretty soon. So it's very exciting. It's, it's a great group of photographers to be included with. I was over the moon when I got invited to be part of the team and go through and see all these names of people whose work I really admired. So they invited you? A mutual friend, Paul McDonald, who runs a photographic gallery and education space over here, was showing with him and so we introduced him to some of my work and he, he got in touch. So it was, yeah, it was wonderful. <laughs> nice. Did you know any of the other photographers? photographers that are showing? I did. I mean, not personally, no. I think Paul and I are the only two from Australia, but I was I knew of the other photographers' work. Yeah, it was quite humbling to be invited to be part of that community and exhibition. It was nice. It was nice to see the work in the world as well, because the Herith series was something that I created as a side. I mean, if you look at the dates on any of the work, they span from 2015 to 2019, because it was something that I was quietly working on in the background that I was figuring out as I went. It was nice to have a project that I didn't feel pressure that needed to be wrapped up in six months. I wanted it to feel like this very slow, gradual journey by the time I came out with it. And it took quite a while to whistle down the work and find the narrative once you've shot all this stuff and then to actually see it go somewhere afterwards was quite rewarding when it's something that you've been keeping to yourself for so long under wraps just sort of whistling away at. Yeah. Is the book available? The book will be available through the Little Black Gallery and the Boys, Boys, Boys homepage. Yeah. Okay. I'll put a link to the Boys, Boys, Boys exhibition that you say is going online in June. Is that right? Yeah, it will be live in June. And the book's already available. As David just mentioned, Boys, Boys, Boys will be exhibited online until the situation with the coronavirus improves. Though checking the Photographiska website, it seems further delays have been put in place in response to the Black Lives Matter protests. In the meantime, I would say follow the respective social media channels to keep up to date with the status of the exhibition. If you'd like to keep hearing the insights from my guests each episode, you're welcome to subscribe to Subtext and Discourse, which is available on all major streaming platforms. You can also reach me on social media via the links in the show notes if you'd like to get in touch, have any questions, or just to say hello. Thanks once again for tuning in. New episodes of the podcast are released every second Monday. Until next time, take care and look after each other. 
My name is Michael Dooney, and you've been listening to Subtext and Discourse.